Does your home have a staffing strategy in place? StaffStat automates your shift filling process and intuitively predicts shift needs. Plan A works in tandem with StaffStat, offering homes a backup staffing model that supports employees and keeps residents safe and cared for. Learn more at ltcstaffingstrategy.com. On a busy day when you've got, oh, we've got a new admission, we've got to fit in. It's, we have a new family and resident that are joining our home and we have the opportunity to shift our culture one family at a time, one conversation at a time. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. The transition to long-term care can bring up a range of emotions for both the resident and their families. The transition can produce feelings of anxiety and fear in seniors, and it's often a source of guilt and uncertainty for family members. Deborah Bakhti is a seniors care consultant, speaker, coach, trainer, and the author of two books. Deb helps to ease that transition into seniors care and build positive connections in long-term care and retirement homes on the part of both the residents and their families and those who are caring for them. Deb worked in seniors care for 11 years before starting her own business and she also cared for her husband and parents in long-term care and retirement homes. Deborah's experiences have equipped her with the tools to provide invaluable support to those making this significant life change. Deborah understands the process of transitioning inside and out, and I am so delighted to have her join us today. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Donna. I'm really curious about the journey that got you to today. You started off working in long-term care and then through life circumstance came into this new role. Can, can you maybe walk us through your experience and just what that path looked like? When I started in seniors care, I was recruited to run the home care division of this organization and really knowing very little about seniors care as most of the population doesn't have a vast knowledge of that. And it was a couple of years in where I started experiencing the business from a family perspective. My dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia. And my mom was really struggling to take care of him at home and multiple hospital visits, falls, 911 calls, all of that stuff that families go through We finally were able to get my dad on a crisis list and placed into long-term care where he lived for six months before passing away. Now, coincidentally, while we were going through that, my husband was starting to have some unique and interesting health challenges, some small signs that turned into bigger signs. And that started a journey for us. Took us over a year and a half to get a diagnosis, 27 different specialists, five different hospitals. And during all of that quest for a diagnosis, his speech, his cognitive abilities, his ability to walk and function kept deteriorating. 
So we were receiving home care, and then um, because I was working full-time, commuting an hour away in my executive position, um, we also had the services of adult daycare. And it was my case manager who sat us down and said, you can no longer be taking care of him at home. It's not safe. It's not effective. Um, the family's falling apart. Our kids were 11 and 17 at the time that he got sick. And so as my dad was already living in a long-term care home, I became the wife of a resident going into long-term care. There was actually a six-month time frame where I had my dad at one end of the city in one home and my husband in another home in the other end of the city. And he lived in long-term care for four years before passing away in 2015. And I had the upper hand because I knew more than the average person. But I still struggled with my role and identity and coping with all of that myriad of emotions, the grief, the anxiety, and the relief, and then feeling guilty about feeling relieved while still trying to multitask, managing my career and my kids and their mental health and well-being. And then it was a few short years after that that my mom, we transitioned her into independent retirement living, and then she started showing some signs of cognitive decline, and we needed to move her into assisted living. And so I was then the resident's daughter again with my mom as she dealt with frontotemporal dementia and all of the limitations that come with that, and she passed away in 2018. And I think what really struck me going through the experience with my husband and the company I worked with were asking me to share the story and the experience. It really struck me that I wanted to step out of my corporate career. I mean, I'd worked in corporate for 20 plus years. And, you know, in my 50s, start my own consulting company because I wanted to work more closely with homes and with families to not just share the story, the story is important and the empathy and the different perspectives, but also look at what are some of the systems and supports that can help both sides of this critical relationship, this almost, I liken it to like an unwanted marriage, <laughs> because most people don't put up their hand and say, I want to move into long-term care. But when crisis or the necessity shows up, it becomes a key relationship that is so important for both sides. And I saw both sides and I wanted to create a connection. And so that's what I've been doing for the last four years. Wow. You had a seven-year period where you lost three members of your family. Loss is, is challenging at the best of times, but when you're going through such an intensive period and with a young husband and kids, I don't think any one of us bargains for that. How did you deal with your grief and the guilt and the, the challenges that you were facing as a family? And what role did the staff play in supporting you through that? Well, when I think about, I mean, it was certainly quite intense for me. I compartmentalized, no question about that. I also very quickly found a great therapist who helped me to work through, knowing that I tend to be sort of this logistical thinker and compartmentalizing my role as mother to my two kids and what role and responsibility did I have to support them and with my husband and with myself and with my career, like with which my job, that um, I also felt a lot of responsibility for. So therapy was really helpful with that. 
I had some friends who would just check in on a weekly basis and they weren't trying to fix me or try to make me feel better. It was giving me the space to talk about sometimes ad nauseum (laughs) what I was dealing with and where I was feeling stuck. And with the staff, Ty was this larger-than-life, gregarious, fun troublemaker. He was in his early 60s when he became a resident, so he's that 10 to 12% of the population in long-term care under 65. And I think because he was so endearing as well as enraging to the staff, we had lots of opportunities (laughs) to talk and problem-solve and really try to work together. And it's what what I really remember are the little moments where I would walk out of Ty's room with tears in my eyes, knowing that I had to, you know, this was visiting him on the way home from an hour commute, knowing I still needed to go home and feed the kids and all of that, and feeling completely drained. And it was when someone would meet my eyes and just stand up and give me a hug. They didn't have to say anything, but they could see the pain that I was feeling and how challenging it was. And they just wanted me to know that they were there for me and for him and for the kids. And it was also hard for the kids to come in and visit them. Their peer group was, they had grandparents in long-term care, not their parents. And there was a particular gentleman, uh, an RN, who he would take notice when, when Logan had that look of despair on his face. And you just say, hey, bud, you know, why don't we just go in and just chat for a few minutes? And I know that staff are really super busy, and sometimes they don't have the luxury of doing that. But from a family perspective, it made all the difference. And that's why, how many years later, I can still vividly remember that experience. What I remember more is how they made me and the kids feel. Thank you for sharing, because there's so many people who think it's not okay to not be okay. We've been having a lot of discussions uh, on our podcast and the, on this podcast, but also in the, in the public realm around what is long-term care and what could it and should it be? And you've had the benefit of being a family caregiver and having loved ones cared for in different care settings. You bring a perspective where you know the sector, uh, you know its possibilities. You've worked in the home care side of seniors, seniors care. As we think about the future of what long-term care could be in a way that can support the staff and, and the staff teams in helping families through those transitions, but also thinking about the new generation of our resident and and seniors, the baby boomers. What questions do you think we need to be asking? And what do you see as some of the opportunities for change? Care partnership is what was coming to mind as you were asking that question. Because I think that, and this is the the work that I do as far as How do you bring both sides together? How do you close the knowledge gap? How do you close the emotion gap? How do you take a more relational versus a transactional approach to how you start the relationship? And we know that old adage, first impressions matter. And I believe it's it's certainly true in this situation. When you think about just the whole application admission process, 
And the probably the hoops that families and residents have had to metaphorically jump through, I mean, you have to be in a certain state of needing care in order to even get approved. And then you're on that wait list of 40,000 people. And a lot of families that I talk to, they've gone through all of the transactions of the hospitals and doctor's appointments and assessments and, I mean, you name it. And Donna, you probably have gone through that as well. And it's exhausting and you just feel like a widget on a production line. And then you have to deal with this reality that your loved one now needs the care of a long-term care home, which is not what you ever, ever imagined, whether it be for your parent, your husband, wife, other relatives, friends. It's just not something that we ever imagine having to sign up for. So you've got all of that angst in a very short time frame that someone has gets the phone call to say, we have a bed available, right? When we were talking the other day about the language that we use. Uh, and you've got a short period of time to say yes. And then it's all of that turmoil of getting ready and what to pack and forms and all of that. And then you show up and... Sometimes what happens is you are squeezed into an already busy day of a lot of other transactions and things that the care team needs to be taken care of because you are one of many residents and you're being onboarded in this way. And I'm not criticizing, uh, I'm, not I'm not judging in any way because all the conversations that I've had, it's, you know, some of my clients say, we've been doing admissions the same way for the last 30 years. We know that it's not ideal or it we could improve, but there are just so many other priorities. And where I push back is to say, you're doing yourself and your families a disservice by not being intentional with how you are bringing them on board. And so I think that having that intentional, and I'm going to use the word strategic, so my, my corporate wording coming in, but a strategic approach to say, this Let's make the assumption that this is one of the worst days of this family's life. How can we make it a little bit better? How can we provide some clarity, some comfort, some reassurance? Because the families don't know what they don't know. All they know is that this feels really scary, and they don't know what today, tomorrow, the next day is going to look like. And they are entrusting people that they've likely never met before with the love of their life, their beloved parent, whomever it is that obviously means a lot to them. And I think sometimes on the service provider side, we're just expecting that they are going to trust us. And so I think that there's a conversation, a journey that needs to happen. And I also believe that both sides have ownership in that. It's not just up to the care team members to do all the work. And that's why I wrote the book, Now What? Because I want the families, I also want them to understand that they have a responsibility and a role to play in that care partnership. And if they don't even know that, yes, my identity is changing. Like the day the penny dropped for me that I went, oh my gosh, I am now a resident's wife. There are lots of gnarly edges to that label. And I really needed help and being able to clarify and identify what that role means, what are my responsibilities, how am I to interact and communicate and share with the care teams? Because a lot of families have dysfunction, 
right? And we don't like to share those dysfunctions because we feel embarrassment or shame about it. And I say to families, it's likely whatever you're hiding, the home has seen before. Like there's very little new things that they haven't seen. And so there's a give and take. And in any relationship, it takes time to build the trust. And so that's where I think care partnership, being intentional with how you are onboarding and getting to know each other is going to be critical for how we can nurture positive, healthy relationships, as well as how do we position ourselves when conflicts will arise or misunderstandings or missed expectations that we can problem solve and collaborate together. And when I think about the situations with Ty, when, you know, he was an eloper, (laughs) he drove the staff crazy. And yet to engage in me and ask me to help with the problem solving would be helpful versus making me feel defensive or um, embarrassed about his behavior, right? There's a, a very clear distinction there. And I love the words you're using, care partner, being very intentional, At our association with our membership, we've been speaking a lot about language and how we talk about people who live in long-term care. We're supporting a family through what is likely going to be one of the most traumatic moments of their lives, a decision that has to be made in short order. In fact, I was speaking with someone the other day who who connected with me because his aunt had been given 24 hours to agree to move into a a specific long-term care home in Ontario. And so he was uh, reaching out to me to find out, is this a good home? And you've got 24 hours and you haven't done the tour. As, as I've mentioned, we've really been thinking about the, the language around care partners and essential caregivers. This is a new role that we've just suddenly been formalizing. And family members, I think through the pandemic and our designation of these essential family caregivers, never really identified as caregiver. They didn't recognize that that's what they were, to your point. Uh, you were a wife, but then you also became caregiver, and that's another part of your identity. Language really, really does matter, and it matters from a cultural perspective as well. I've heard you say, Deborah, that if we're going to change culture, we're going to do it one conversation at a time. Could you talk to to us about that and speak about your thoughts on on how to make that real? I I always say celebrate incrementalism. So I I love your approach, you know, piece it out so it's manageable. How that all came about was, you know, when I realized that the, the work I do with clients is to help them shift their culture on the way in, one family at a time, one conversation at a time. Because as you know, the average long-term care home about half of their residents leave every year, primarily through death, um, sometimes you transfer. And so what that means is that every year, half of your residents are new people and new families. And so we're going to call it the admission process. It's a standard process that happens in every home every year. And it just occurred to me that if you, going back to being intentional, if you're intentional with how you are welcoming in new families with like a a family relationship strategy or plan, then every family that you're bringing in is an opportunity 
to be shifting and changing and improving the culture in your home with that family, with that resident, which also impacts the care team members. You know, when you talk about language, I mean, in my book, I referred to staff as care team members because, again, I want families to understand that they aren't just staff, they aren't just employees. These are people who are members of the organization that they work for, and they're there because they care about the the safety and well-being, and they grow to love their residents. And so being able to look at it that way, and I like, you know, how you describe that as being incremental, that it really is a mindset shift on a busy day when you've got, oh, we've got a new admission, we've got to fit in. It's, we have a new family and resident that are joining our home, and we have the opportunity to shift our culture one family at a time, one conversation at a time. And just saying it that way shifts the energy because then it's one of those we get to have the privilege of welcoming this new family and just easing their day a little bit and giving them a little bit more comfort versus we have to do another admission. I can only imagine what it must have been like for Deborah to be caring for her husband and parents at the same time, all the while working full-time and raising children. However, the small silver lining to the situation was that Deborah's experiences have given her an unparalleled empathy and a more thorough understanding of how to support families experiencing similar struggles. Today, Deborah uses her experience to both help families and staff understand what is involved in navigating these life-altering transitions and building strong relationships between families and the care team. I wanted to hear Deborah's thoughts on how we can shift the system so there is more sensitivity to the importance of the transition and supporting families in that transition. What would your thoughts be on the changes that we need to see. So you've spoken about the fact that we have tens of thousands of people on a wait list in Ontario, Canada for our care homes. Families are going in because they're in crisis. So by the time you actually have access to the opportunity to move into the home and make that transition, you're you're in a crisis situation. And what of the people who are waiting at home, those tens of thousands of people, how do we, in your view, if you could reimagine what the future is going to look like, what could and should long-term care look like, some presidential long-term care, but but can we deconstruct it a bit that is more responsive so that those who are not getting care are, are able to access other services and supports? Yeah, I mean, I do think that it is very community-driven. And some organizations are doing a good job with that, where they are doing that outreach and connecting with other community providers employers, like really, I think it's a bit of a brand redesign (laughs) in what is our role in our community as a long-term care home? How do we connect and do that outreach and make people aware? How do we encourage people to come in, you know, when it's healthy, when it's safe to, to be visiting, but to, to make it as not that place that you drive by and say, gosh, I hope I never end up there, 
to really having a better understanding and appreciation and who are the people that work there. And I, I understand that there's huge systemic challenges that we're all facing and, and that can become very overwhelming because we're not going to fix everything all at once. So going back to, you know, you're taking an incremental approach. What are the small baby steps that we can be taking to start building that pathway to the future and who do we want to connect with that we can help to educate and help them understand long-term care? And I think we would all agree we would prefer to age in place in our familial home. But when we do need to make that choice, make sure that we're equipped and armed with the right information and the insights and, and knowledge to be able to do that and that we can find that partnership relationship to be able to build from there. And so I think it just, it comes down to that community awareness and connection as just another place in our community that provides value to families. Because I'm sure you've talked to a lot of families. They are so grateful that their loved one is in a long-term care home being cared for, and they've got great relationships with the staff. The media doesn't tend to cover those stories. But there is, I would say more often than not, that is exactly what happens. And how how do homes, and I'm seeing it on social media, sharing letters of gratitude from families, but doing more of that and sharing more of those stories and even asking families where they can come on a podcast and share their story and things that they've learned is so important in the education process. Let's make it less scary and, and more approachable. We need to bring the humanity back. And it really is about relationships. And again, I'm coming back to language. We're hearing because of what had happened during the pandemic and those tragic losses of life, somehow there's a thinking that there wasn't enough enforcement and we need more rules and we need more laws and we need more penalties. How, in your view, can we offset that and bring it back to a language that is less oppositional. Where I've done focus groups where it's been multidisciplinary families, frontline management, what I find so interesting is people get talking about a situation and you create the space for them to, you know, that old metaphor of the beach ball with the different color stripes, that I'm going to talk to you about why I see blue and you're going to talk about why you see red. You see the light bulbs go off with people. I never thought of it that way. Oh, I didn't understand that that's why that was required. And I think sometimes it's getting everybody together in the room that is a st stakeholder in the situation. And I would say including families, residents, things that impact them. And, and it doesn't mean that we're going to implement everything we hear, but we're not getting the full picture and I would love to be able to see government sitting in those conversations because it does bring it down to the humanity and the experience of things versus the rules and regulations and policies, protocols, procedures, all of those things that tend to keep people away from the bedside care and the eye-to-eye -eye conversations. number of times I've heard families say, well, you know, they, they, they're, they're always on that little iPad that they have. Yeah, because they're required to put data in. And data is important, but it doesn't drive everything. You know, we do need rules and we do need to have quality improvement assessments and we need to do regular reviews. But we also need to focus on outcomes that are anchored in human beings, not the number of menu violations you would have had. 
The fact that in Ontario, they legislate how early you're allowed to serve dinner, that that has to be legislated. We lose the humanity in that and lose that personal connection when we do that. So I always find that really troublesome. We need to be coming together with a shared vision to problem solve and change the tone and approach. What are those first three steps that could get us on that path? What first comes to mind is that education and insight for families. If we can empower families and help to change the narrative that they're currently hearing in the media, because the families are thinking that tighter regulations and legislation and all of that are the key to it, we want to be able to help change that narrative and educate them on why we need to have more of that empathy and care partnership. And we need their help, whether it be through Family Council of Ontario individual home relationships that they have. And I think secondly, it's the education and insight for the care team members as to how important that family relationship is, why they could benefit and how they could benefit by investing the time up front to build that relationship. And I think there's always room for conversation with the residents They see things. Sometimes you get to see them in the dining room, just observing, taking everything in. What are they seeing? And what does their voice say about more regulations and legislation? And bring those voices to the table because they are all the customers that, you know, long-term care, seniors care is so unique. It's a 24-7, 365 where people work, people live, and people visit. And so it's, it's this little village of sorts that operates that throwing way too much of the regs and legislation and all of that. Yes, there's a role for it, but we really need to be putting, I mean, when we say residents first, it's not the residents' rules and regulations. It's the resident as a person, as you say, as a human being who is likely living the last chapter of their life. And I'll also say the memories that I have of my mom, my dad, and my husband, most of them, because they were the the latest memories, are in the home. And I know that Ty made friends and the number of care team members that came to his funeral because he, he made an impact with his life in that home. And I'm really proud of that under suboptimal situations, what he was able to obviously without realizing it or intending to, wasn't in his game plan to be living in long-term care in his 60s. But he made a difference. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind. That's a beautiful thing. I think that is a great spot for us to wrap up on because residents can make a difference and do make a difference. And it needs to be about them. And let's do this, Deborah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful discussion and quite honestly moving discussion with Deborah today. Here are some of my key insights that I take away from my conversation. First, being placed on the wait list and then moving into long-term care represents a significant life transition, not only for the individual who is making the move, but for their family as well. 
The healthcare system can feel very rushed and transactional to families, and it's time for a fresh look at how we can be more intentional with a focus on easing stress and building connections with the resident and their family at each stage of the process. Second, one of the main obstacles to developing a clear focus on the resident and family experience is the current regulatory system and its many reporting requirements. As Deborah noted, families often comment on the fact that staff are not as available as they would like to be because they are so busy filling in data on the computer or checking off checklists. Finally, We all need to work together to shift the narrative around what long-term care is and how we talk about it. As Deborah mentioned, most families in long-term care are grateful that their loved one is in a long-term care home, that they are being cared for by strong care teams who really do have the best interests of their family members in mind. We need to find new ways to share these encouraging and reassuring stories with the public and others. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate our show five stars, and please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is our last episode of Coming of Age, Season 1. We are currently hard at work on our second season, so please stay tuned for more new episodes coming in 2022. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Stay well.